Hey, good morning, guys. Good to, good to see you here today. I want to I wanna get us going here with a quote. It's a quote that I uh, absolutely love personally, and um, it's actually something that's come to shape how I think about ministry and, and, and try to approach it. Here it is. It says this. I like to think that teaching begins the discussion. I think that's the greatness of Jesus' teaching, is that it pushes us and it begins the discussion. We're still talking about Jesus' teachings. And so my goal is always to begin a discussion about whatever it is that we're diving into. And so sometimes you might leave here thinking... But now I have way more questions than answers. I'm just curious, and I don't need like a show of hands on this, but have you ever had that experience where you come in and you're like, I have way more questions than answers, to which then I respond, yes. Because questions are a good thing. Guys, I gotta tell you, we're never gonna have God figured out. And when we stop asking questions, we settle. I am not here indicating that somehow God is not knowable. He is, and he reveals himself, and he shows himself, but God is deep and mysterious and vast, and and what he shows us scratches the surface into something, and God wants us to ask questions. You know, my experience in church is there's two kinds of people that, that, that often gravitate There's the one kind that comes and they have questions. Questions about God, life, spirituality, all of it. You know what I mean? You come, you have questions, but it's like, I'm new and I don't know who to ask. I'm new and can I ask? It's not even my place. Or maybe it's this side of things. Maybe you've been coming like 20 years. Maybe you've been a Christian for like 50 years of your life. And you think you should know the answers. And if you ask It reveals that you might not know something that you think people should expect you to know, that you expect yourself to know. And so the questions go unasked. You know what I mean on this? I want to tell you today, there is no such thing as a bad question with God. There is no no, no question that, that is so out of bounds, heretical, strange, weird, that God does not want you to ask or that we don't want you to ask either. I want to encourage you here today if I'm speaking to you. Ask the questions. There's another group I find that gravitates towards churches. And it's the people who are so convicted and certain in what they've been taught that they get into a rut or a stream, or a certain way of thinking. Because if they were to be given the Bible test, they would get 98% of it correct on a sheet. But because they've gotten so into one track, and so certain about one tradition of teaching or ideas, that they've stopped thinking outside of it. Or they've stopped asking the questions that go, how does this intersect with my life? with what God is up to in the world today? How does this intersect with where God might be leading me or the people that that I'm in in, in relationship with? Guess if I'm speaking to you here today, don't stop asking questions. We don't have it all figured out. Asking questions is a sign of faith. Even if those questions are rooted in what feels like doubt, coming from a place of uncertainty, 
To ask the question is the step forward into what God wants to do in your life. Don't shut them out. The people that I get concerned with most are those who stop asking. Because it tells me that maybe they've forgotten God is up to something in this world. Or up to something in their life. Or maybe they've stopped wrestling at a deeper level with what God is actually up to. God wants you to wrestle with them. There's this great story in the Old Testament. It's a guy named Jacob that God comes to and selects. And they fight and wrestle all night. Jacob won't let go. God renames him Israel, the one who fights with God. It's amazing, isn't it? That what God chooses to name his chosen people are the ones that fight with God, the ones that wrestle with God, And so what we're going to encourage you to do today is simply that. Ask questions. Now I want to show you one more quote. And this comes out of our our, our just core DNA here at Fellowship of Faith. It says this. A desire to be real. We believe the church needs to be a place where people can come and see that Christians are real people experiencing joys and passions and struggles, taking the mask off, taking the church facade down and going, God is a real God and those who follow him are real people too. And because of this, we strive to communicate God's truth and share our experiences in open and honest ways. We believe it's important as a community to be honest about our shortcomings, authentic in our lives, and sincere in what we teach. That includes this side of the deck It includes that side as well. We want to be humble as a church and express our faith in a way that is genuine. And that all leads up to what we're doing today. For the next three weeks, we're jumping into a series called Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church. This isn't new to FOF, but it's something that I look forward to every year when we circle it around again. And this is what we are inviting you to do. Today, we want you to take this out. Today is the day to text during church, all right? We want you to take out your phone or your tablet or if you got your laptop and nothing else, bust it out. We don't care, all right? And in a moment, I am going to put a phone number on the screen. And we are going to invite you to text your questions in. Anything goes. Questions about God, Christianity, spirituality, life. The church, this church. You can ask questions about me. You can ask questions about my wife. She's not here right now. I'll tell you everything, all right? Um, nothing is off limits, guys. We don't care how, how mainline and conservative or radical and heretical it might feel. We don't care how simple or how complex. We don't care how small or how far-reaching. Text your questions in and what I'm going to do is the very best job I can to answer them as honestly and as forthrightly as I can right here on the spot. They come in anonymously. I won't know who they're coming from, but I encourage you to begin. Text your questions to 1-815-314-0363. Again, that's 815-314-0-F-O-F. And let's see where this goes today. Now, while you're texting in, just to prime the pump, 
when we sent the e-news out this week and what we're doing, um, an attender got back to me and he's just kind of like, look, I'm kind of like textually challenged. Um, can I email a question? So I'm like, sure. Let me start with his. The compl- uh, excuse me. The complete transformation of Saul to Paul, a guy in the Bible, still baffles me. He spent the least amount of time with Jesus of the apostles, but he seems to be the most passionate. Did this special revelation happen on the road to Damascus and in Damascus while still blind? Or did Jesus take him behind the shed for some real attitude correction? All right? Now, if you have no idea the context of this question, For the last 40 weeks or so, we have been going through the writings in the New Testament of an early follower of Jesus named Saul, who has this radical conversion experience with Jesus, basically from religious terrorist, just go with it, to someone who became the most influential person in the Christian faith. And uh, we've been studying his writings for the last 40 weeks. And uh, you can read Acts chapter 9 in the New Testament to get the story of what this guy is like. But to answer your question, and let me restate, did this special revelation happen on the road to Damascus while he was still blind, or did Jesus take him behind the shed for some real attitude correction? You know how I want to answer that? It's simply like this. Yes. Yeah. He revealed it on the road to Damascus. And, and something happened there that was, that was cataclysmic and, and life-changing for Paul. But it didn't stop there. Because for Paul, it isn't about a one-time religious experience. It was what God continued to reveal and show that he writes openly about in his letters like Galatians throughout the course of his life and the rooting he had before he was even converted to begin with deep in, in, in the word of the Old Testament. So all of this swelled together in Paul's life. And to that insight you gave on the passion thing, do you ever find that those who are most grateful for things are those who find themselves the least deserving for them when they receive them? That the people who appreciate cold water are those who are the most parched. The people who appreciate good food or creature comforts are those who have gone without it. I love what Paul writes. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul knew his past and he knew himself and he knew his heart. And so when he came face to face with Jesus saying, I want to use you. I love you. I choose you. Oh, you know what I mean? And it changed him forever. Great question. I heard like 48 pings come in while I was sharing that. So let's get into it here today, guys. Let's see what you got to say. It's sinking. It's sinking. Here we go. All right, off the bat. Why are there question marks on the stage? Because we've got interns. (laughs) If God already knows what we want and need and knows whether he's going to say yes or no, why do we pray? You ever ask yourself that one? It's a classic question. If God knows our very thoughts before we ask, if God is going to answer yes or no based on knowing um, our thoughts before we ask, why bother asking to begin with? Why bother praying? You understand the logic of this, yes? Because praying is not fundamentally about asking God for things. Prayer 
is about conversation. God invites us to pray because he wants to talk to us. God invites us to pray because he wants a living relationship with us. Have you ever had to try, have you ever tried to have a relationship with someone that you just didn't communicate with? How'd that go for you? God wants us to be talking to him, sharing our joys and our struggles, asking our questions, just sharing our day, sharing our hopes and our fears and our dreams, telling him why, why we like him, what we're grateful for. All of this is, is what, what, what prayer is rooted in, and asking is part of it. He likes to be asked. How that works out in his mind, I don't know, but I know that the scripture says, says this, ask me, ask me. At some fundamental level, he just likes to be asked. So don't give up on prayer thinking that it's unimportant or ineffective. My boyfriend and I are both Christians, and we want to put Christ first in our relationship. What is the best way to do this? By putting Christ first in your relationship. You know, and and again, there might be a lot of subtext to this question. Boyfriend or not, God wants you to put him first in your life anyway. And what that means is asking yourself a series of questions like this. Who do I follow first? Who do I listen to first? Who do I seek to please in my life first? Who do I want to bring joy in my life first? And I encourage you, pray about this and search the scriptures and God will show you that kind of path. See, what Christ invites us to do is not just trust him, but to trust him in a way that's marked by obedience and love and devotion. Start becoming the person now that God wants you to be and make that central in any relationship you happen to find yourself in. And I'll tell you, you do that and God will bring good stuff. Good stuff, not struggle-free, but good stuff in any relationship you find yourself in. The Bible, this person texts, takes us from the beginning forward. What would before that? I'm just reading these literally. Where did God come from? It's a great one. It's a head scratcher. It's one that people have struggled with forever, and it's one that there is no good answer for. What the scriptures simply say is this. God is eternal. He always was. There never was a before God. He never came into being. So whatever we, in our mind's eye, call the beginning, whether that's the creation of matter, the creation of time and space as we know it, somehow there is a being that exists that is so much bigger and greater than that, that he just always was, that everything that begins emanates from him. Again, I don't know how you wrap your mind around that, but either way, it's a paradox, right? Because if something created him, then what created that? Either way, you're asking the same question. God invites us to trust that he always was, always is, and always will be. All right. John chapter 1, 2 to 5 speaks about he was with God in the beginning. Who is he? And is the light that is spoken about the same light as in Genesis 1-3? This is actually a technical one. This is a good one. Let me just kind of catch you up to what both these passages say. Here's Genesis. Let's start there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now it was formless and void. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters of the deep, of the abyss. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Okay, that's Genesis 1. Here's John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. John in the New Testament is clearly making reference and allusion back to Genesis in the Old Testament. But the light that John is talking about in the New Testament is not the light that Genesis is talking about in the Old. When God said, let there be light, he created something. What did he create? Photons? I don't know. He created something. How how metaphorical, how metaphysical do we go with it? I don't know. But he created something that is light and good and, and revelatory in this world, but he created it. What John does is step in and he identifies the person is, quote, the word, not the light. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. This one called the word who he identifies as Jesus about eight verses later, he says, is the light of the world. Just like God shone light in the world at the beginning, Jesus shone, shines light into the world now. So it's a metaphorical pickup there. I hope that helped. And if I lost you, I'm sorry, but welcome to questions. All right. How about this one? Come on. Can you be a good person and not believe in God? There's so many ways I want to answer this question. Can you be a good person and not believe in God? Let's start from one perspective. From the perspective of, I think, you and me every day on the street, where we tend to look at different people and go, that's a good person and that's not. Then there's plenty of good people. Plenty of people a lot better than Christians who don't believe in God. Plenty of people, maybe I should say, that despite not believing in God, have an attitude, a character, a personality, a disposition, and a lifestyle that pleases him far more than many who call on his name. However, Jesus himself, when called good teacher, will come back, Jesus himself, and say, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. From a human perspective, it's easy to look at ourselves in comparison to each other and think we're good. But that's like a bunch of alcoholics looking at each other and going, who's the least alcoholic one here? It's a bunch of child molesters in a room together going, okay, who did the least amount here? At some level, would we call any of them good? The scriptures will speak extensively how all of us have fallen short of God's glory. How Jesus will say, there's no one good, no, not even one. How Paul will write, there's no one good, not even one. All our, gra- all our mouths are open graves. All our hearts are filled with deceit. See, what Christianity is about is not being good. So God will like you. It's about coming face to face with the fact that you're not good and saying, God, because of that, I need you. Hopefully that helps. Next question. Were all of the disciples killed as martyrs? No, because disciple is a word that simply means follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a disciple. 2,000 years 
of Christian history is filled with billions and billions of disciples. And they're not all dead. And they didn't all die of martyrdom, all right? But I don't think that's what you're asking. I think what you're asking is about the original 12. That, 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 that inner band of 12 followers Jesus selected. And um, were all of them killed as martyrs? I don't know. I don't know. We just don't know what happened to a lot of them. I mean, Judas was a disciple, and he killed himself. I really wouldn't call that martyrdom. There's lots of church tradition around people like Bartholomew and Philip and Peter that seems to indicate they were executed, but at the end of the day, we're just unsure. But I can tell you this. According to church tradition, an underlying church tradition, just about all of them met a martyr's death. That's how much Jesus meant to them. Okay. How can someone reconcile the possibility of extraterrestrial life with the Bible? Specifically, with Jesus coming to the earth to save us and not to our knowledge to anywhere else. Actually, very easily. God did not create humans and the earth. God created the cosmos of which humans and the earth are a part. So anything created anywhere in this universe or multiverse, if you prefer that flavor, is fundamentally created by God. And if Jesus is God, he is Lord over it all, not just one terrestrial ball called earth. It's fascinating that even in the New Testament, when it talks about Jesus dying, we all run to for our sins. Well, that's true but it's reductionistic. Jesus died for all creation. All creation is, is, is in need of restoration and salvation, and Jesus died for it all because God doesn't have just a plan for human beings. God has a plan for the created order itself, and all of it enters into his new way with what Jesus chose to do on this planet in this way. Okay, are related. Genesis says that, uh, says that uh, God created the universe in seven days. Scientific discovery says 13.7 billion years. Are scientists just being duped by God? Or was God trying to relate the creation of the universe to beings who could not have possibly conceived 13.7 billion years? There's a lot there. Let me kind of approach it like this. One, I don't think God is trying to dupe scientists or anyone else in this world. I think God wants to be known. I think God seeks to reveal himself, but I don't think he makes it easy all the time. All right? So let's kind of start there, and I don't think there's a con job happening. Two is this. Scientists are constantly changing their mind. Science is about discovery. Who knows 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, how prevailing theories will change. The very nature of science is that it's always up for debate and possibility of change. So it's dangerous to ever root an entire, an entire belief system into a prevailing belief among smart, oftentimes many God-fearing men trying to wrestle with the evidence that they're seeing with the limited capacity they have in any day and age. Third, Genesis is a poem. No getting around it. Genesis is a poem. 
And so many people have approached Genesis as though it's meant to be, and I hate the cliche, but a scientific textbook of sorts. It's not. Genesis speaks very boldly and very beautifully into the idea of a God who creates and creates in a certain way. But from the beginning, believers have always taken Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and other creation ideas that weave throughout the scriptures and have seen these as something more than a literalistic thing that's meant to be unearthed in the jots and tittles of giving the play-by-play of how God did. Okay? So, there's a lot going on there and more than I'm going to be able to sink our teeth into, but I encourage you on that one. So many good resources that I can point your way. Ask me for some. Come find me afterwards, and I'll give you a couple things that you can start reading from some different vantage points that I think will be illuminating to you as you wrestle with this great question. How do you forgive someone like how God forgives us? Do you know what the absolute worst prayer is in the Bible that Christians say every week? It's the Lord's Prayer. You ever like actually, I don't mean say the words, you ever actually pray this thing? You ever get this line? Forgive us our trespasses. Finish it. Okay, did you hear what you said? How? God, forgive me how, God? As we, just like I forgive others. Shouldn't it be prayed like this? Forgive us our trespasses despite how we forgive those who trespass against us? For God, they're linked. First, forgiveness doesn't come easy to God either. It cost him everything. God knows what it means to suffer, to forgive. Take some solace and encouragement in that because there's people in our lives that have hurt us deeply, isn't there? Wounds and scars that many of us may never get fully beyond this side of eternity. But you know, what I've discovered is forgiveness is more about an action than it is about a feeling. There are people that I have to choose to forgive every day despite the fact that in my heart I'm emotionally still gripped by it. That in my heart I don't feel free of it. That in my heart I still feel the pain. I remember one person in my life God, I hate him. Pray that. Pray that because it's at least true. God, I hate him. I don't want to see any good come to him. But you've called me to forgive him. Dear God, help me. Because you tell me to, I forgive him today and it kill you inside. Don't expect it to happen just once. Expect for some of you to have to choose to do that every single day. That's how I think the process begins, at least for many of us. Next question. Um, Are dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible? Not by name. Well, they're not. (laughs) All right, next question. Martin Luther, um, so we are a Lutheran church, just for some context. Martin Luther made very anti-Jewish statements calling for the burning of synagogues and Jewish schools, prohibiting rabbis to teach on pain of death, forcing Jews to perform manual labor, among others, Much of the Jew hatred in Germany that culminated in the Holocaust has its roots in Luther's statements. How do you reconcile these statements by Luther with his name being attached to churches? That is, the Lutheran churches. Well, quite simply, Luther was often an ass. Um, He just was. We don't follow Luther. We follow Jesus. But there was a man made Martin Luther 
who was a corrupt, fallen human being and knew it and knew that he was not a good person and knew that he needed God and discovered with brilliant insight and clarity just how gracious and wonderful God is to asses like Luther. And those are words he would use. I'm not just putting words in his mouth. And so we call ourselves a Lutheran church because he had a line of teaching that developed on this that that's, I, for one, and people in this tradition have found kind of a rooted in. But is it to say that he's infallible? No. Is it to justify every comment he made? You better, no. No. Is it to say that he's somehow our guide in every aspect? No. But what I've discovered is that we can learn things in this world from people that aren't perfect. Have you found that? I have. And I encourage you to maybe to think about it that way without trying to whitewash, soft pedal, or justify some of the inflammatory comments that he's been known to make. Okay, let me. Why did God make me so different from other people? Now, I don't know who you are. I don't know the context you're asking this in. So let me just kind of say a few things. Because God thinks you're really, really cool. God loves variety. God is not a factory worker cookie-cuttering the same thing off the press. God doesn't want you like other people. God wants you like you. He's created you, informed you, and molded you in a special way to do something in this world that no one else can rival or match. Now, you might not know what that is. You might look at your weaknesses and think that those are things holding you down. I don't know all of what's going into this, but I'm going to tell you, God doesn't make junk and God has made you special, and there's something special he can do through all of your weaknesses, whatever they might be. He invites you. Rejoice in that. Trust him in that. And delight in that. Next question. How can I be like Jesus so people know that there is a hero amongst them? Let me say that again to get my mind wrapped around it. How can I be like Jesus so people know that there is a hero amongst them? So, so what, I, what I'm kind of interpreting by this is, how can I be like Jesus so other people who are down and out and downtrodden can look at me and know that there's hope and light and salvation and, and, and a hero to save them? I don't know if I'm stretching on that, but that's how I'm taking it. And I'm going to tell you this. Your point in being like Jesus is not to make it about you. Jesus is the hero. Don't upstage him. Let Jesus be the hero. All of us are second-rate heroes at best. He is the hero, and what it means for us to be believers is not to point people to ourselves and go, look what, I'm so good, I'm so amazing, I got it so down. No, 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 no. Look at who Jesus is, what he does, why he's so good, why he's so amazing, what he's done for a chump like me, and what he can do for a chump like you. So start there, but follow it up. Yes, obey him. Take him at his word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do justice. Practice mercy. Walk humbly with your God. May it come out of you. Can I just suggest read Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. Spend the rest of your life just reading those three chapters, okay? And make it a part of you. And try to live it day by day. And you will see God work through you in... Mm, incredible, incredible ways. All right, 
There's a lot here, guys, and I'm trying to find stuff that uh, my friends are not Christians and do worldly things that I try to avoid. When they ask me why I don't do them, how should I answer in a humble way to maybe even guide them to the Lord and also not make them look at me as better? Man, have you ever like wrestled with this one? It is a phenomenal question, and can I just applaud you off the bat for even asking it to begin with? Because I'll tell you, that is a hard place to find yourself in. You know, what I've had to find for myself is to kind of approach it almost with a certain kind of mentality in mind. That the choice I'm going to make here today is not so much about the effect it will have on my friends and leading them to Christ or not, or whatever that might be, is saying this, Lord, You've called me to have my first devotion to you. And whatever the outcome, that's what I'm going to choose. To say, God, I'm here to honor you more than I am to win people. So, you said humbly, way to go. God bless you, whoever you are. But what I found is that humbleness often has to be expressed in a certain level of assertiveness or even boldness. You don't have to make a federal case out of everything and you can try to avoid and just stay out and not bring it to light. But sometimes you're going to find yourself put on the spot. And I have found no better response than this. Make it your own, but here's the idea. Guys, I'm sorry. I love Jesus. And I'm really trying to follow him. And I can't. And I love you guys, but just just understand that I can't for that reason. I mean, you're making yourself vulnerable, bro. You're putting yourself on the spot, but it's better than beating around the bush. It's better than hiding. You're not there to shame them. You're not there to put them down. Don't be afraid to let yourself be known for the choices that you make. And if they're your friends, I mean, this feels like an after-school special, but really, if they're your friends, they'll still be your friends. And maybe you'll get chided. Maybe you'll get mocked. Welcome to martyrdom. Bear it with honor. Bear it with pride. Okay. Phenomenal questions. I scratched the surface. I got good news for you. We get to come back here next Sunday. Rock on. The series does not end today. Questions that I have not gotten to, I'm going to kick us off with next Sunday. We're going to open live texting again and invite you to bring in even more. So if I did not get to your question today, I got good news. I'm not avoiding you. We just ran out of time. We are going to commune today. And it's this amazing way when Jesus was martyred himself, gave his life so that you and I can have this thing called new life. And we want to invite you into this today. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. And it's given for you. And he took a cup after supper and he gave thanks. And he gave it to them. And he said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. And it's shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Come and do this in remembrance of me. I want to talk about this just a minute longer. We had a question coming at nine o'clock. Can anyone come and commune? And here was my answer to them. Literally, probably yes. I don't think that our communion attendants will throw elbows or fight you off. But should you? Should anyone come and commune? No. There's something powerful and potent in this meal I shared with them. 
something God wants to do in you and through you, but the scriptures are clear about us coming with the right attitude, preparing our hearts. Here was an encouragement I made to them and something that I want to invite you to do these next couple of moments before we come to share in this today. And I invited them to just ask themselves these four questions for you to soul search on this right now. One, do you believe that you're a sinner? I mean, not just say, do you, have you come to terms with it? Do you know it in your life? Have you come to that place? Two, are you trusting in Jesus and his death and resurrection for your forgiveness and for your acceptance by God, for your life transformation rather than trying to just kind of do it by your own? Have you really come to terms with that? Three, do you believe that our God is a God who is active and on the prowl, that he's coming to us? He's coming to us through this thing that we do together. He's coming to us through this ordinary meal. And four, are you turning your life over to God today? Are you repenting of the things in, in your life that are anti-God? That are in rebellion or disobedience from Are you actually doing it? Or are you, are you saving some of your favorites behind? Guys, I want to invite you, if you can say yes to those four questions, I don't care who you are, where you've been, what your background might be, welcome to Christ's amazing table. If you can't answer yes to all four of those today, way to go for honesty in that. Don't come forward, but spend some time at your seat seeking God in prayer and repentance. And I tell you, no one will look down on you for it. Your respect, go, respect for you goes up in my book tenfold for taking this seriously. And so maybe we just need to kickstart it right now. For the next 30 seconds, maybe, just take some quiet time right now and let's pray personally, quietly, silently. And let God meet you and open the conversation around those four questions today. Lord God, help each of us here to come to terms with our sin and our depravity. Help us to come to terms with the, the amazing thing that you did for us by dying on a cross and your resurrection. May we dare to believe it and to put our trust and our future and our hope in that and not ourselves. May we hold on to your promise that you come to us in times such as these. And even if we might not feel it, Lord, to know that you are here, root out the sin of our heart. Convict us where we need convicting. And may we see our arms wide open to your path and way. Brothers and sisters, welcome the table of the Lord.